Welcome to the Movement Minutes with your host, Reed Nellis. Here, we pursue the human connection. We learn how to empower one another. We discuss clinical pearls. We discover our passions. We reflect on our capacity to achieve. We remain open to novel trends and concepts because regardless of our backgrounds or experiences, our successes or failures, we all speak the same language, human movement. On today's podcast, we've got Kyle Moore, the associate head athletic trainer for the Vegas Golden Knights NHL team. Super big, important position, but he didn't start there, okay? And today we talk about his steps that he took there following his passions to achieve this high-level position and what it takes in this position to communicate not only with the athletes, but the multidisciplinary providers that work within this organization and the team aspect of getting these athletes achieving their best possible. I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. It was a great conversation. I was very fortunate to sit down with Kyle, even though we were miles and miles and miles apart across time zones, which you'll hear more about in today's episode. But join me in welcoming Kyle Moore. All right, guys, today we've got Kyle Moore. He's the associate head athletic trainer with the Vegas Golden Knights. It's a NHL team. You might have heard of it. They're pretty darn good, and they keep beating the wild, my team, all the time. But I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. Uh, I look forward to this conversation. As you guys just heard, the intro and all of Kyle's accolades. Um, but Kyle, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, first of all, thank you, uh, Reed, for for having me on this. It's been uh, it's been great getting to know you through um, through some mutual clients and uh, collaborating a little bit um, throughout the past couple of years. Um, so first of all, thank you for for having me. I'm, I'm excited for this. Um, yeah, I'm an athletic trainer. Um, I've been an athletic trainer every ever since school. Um, Found it out it was my passion early in life when I got hurt a lot and spent a lot of time with athletic trainers when I was a when I was a young high school athlete. Yeah, tried to uh, made a made a leap uh, move across the country for an opportunity for an NHL club, and um, couldn't be happier here in the role that I'm in. So you just said uh, throughout all your athletic endeavors, getting injured. What uh, sports did you play? So in high school, I did. Um, soccer basketball and then uh track and field um so yeah i was i was always athletic all year round um i'd say mediocre at best um at them um but uh ankle injuries were my thing um i always had chronic chronic ankle issues which has actually changed the way that i'm i'm kind of active now i've picked things that are less uh less demand on my ankles so um spent a lot of time with my athletic trainer in high school um, still very close with her today, um, and it was uh, it exposed me to what what I wanted to do very early. Which, looking back on it now, I think is a is a was a big blessing to be able to have that knowledge right away. Yeah, I think you know human nature is getting passionate about the things that you question most, right? Like think back to any course you took in college or high school, the ones that you had the most questions in, like self driving questions like, well, gosh, how does that work? That's what you get interested in. And I have a great relationship with my mentor that led me down the path I'm still in. So it's it's cool to see that you still have the same or similar relationship with who led you, your athletic trainer that led you down this path. So um, as you mentioned, jack of all trades, master of none, I'm guessing you went to a smaller high school. If yeah, you were able I'm to play of, that many sports. Yeah, if, if, you weren't, if you weren't elite, I mean, 
Yeah, I'm from a very rural area. Um, I graduated with a class of uh, 160, I think it was, in my in my high school. It's called small high school called Ole Valley High School, um, just outside of Reading, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, so yeah, so very small, very rural area, very tight knit area. I I've always loved sports. Sports has always been my passion. Um, whether it was playing it or watching it or whatever involving sports. Um, and that combined with thinking back on it now is probably my first exposure to like an anatomy physiology course, um, at the high school level. And then that experience with, uh, athletics myself and seeing how athletic trainers work, I kind of fell into the profession because I knew I wanted to do something involving the human body, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a doctor and go to school that long. And at that time when I, that's kind of what my perspective was, um, and then I always, once I learned what athletic training was, I learned, I mean, part of my favorite things about my, my job is that I get to have a front row seat to a professional game every, every other day or every third day. Yeah. So, I mean, I still, you're, you're not looking for goals. You're looking for hell. Oh, don't do like, <laughs> it. You're no, the protective it, dad out there a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it was weird when I was in the bubble in Edmonton. Um, I was, we were with some of our staff cause they had it set up that when you weren't playing and if you had time, you could just go to like one of the suites and any team that was there inside the bubble could just go and watch the game. And, um, I went to the first one. I'm like, I haven't sat and watched a live sport as a fan. And I could not tell you how long, like I've been yeah. to like the odd NFL game, like something like that like in the off season with friends or something like that. But like just to sit and especially hockey, like to right. sit and watch a hockey game and not, be working it was right. a super weird sensation that's super funny <laughs> that's super funny so you mentioned you grew up in the east coast now you live in vegas uh we previously were talking about the wind and all that fun stuff but the the heat and all that like everybody knows do you get out and play a round of golf and sweat it out in the 120 degree heat at all or no yeah it's like yeah athletically now golf is one of my one of my passions um i've always played golf it's been my dad taught me at a very young age um one of my big extracurriculars if you will um but yeah it's uh the biggest difference is the humidity um yeah. east coast humidity you play golf you're sweating through three shirts right i mean out here i'll play in 105 degree heat and just make sure i got a bunch of water on me I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm really not bad. Like it's hot, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's tolerable. Um, you're not sweating. You're not sweating the whole time through it. So, so would you, would I be wrong in saying that you'd rather take the Vegas heat versus East coast humidity? Now? Yes. And especially yeah. year one, when we went to the final against Washington, um, in June and we got off the plane when we went to game, when we went there for our away games and that wall of moisture just hits you. Right. Um, I didn't miss it at all. <laughs> That's super funny. Once, once I got exposed, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, my body's adapted, right? Like right. I'm going to be, it's going to be a different level of a tolerance, but, um, yeah. And like, I'm a wuss now when it comes to cold, like I used, <laughs> I used to be, I mean, Pennsylvania is not Minnesota, but I mean, it still gets cold and you still have a winter. Right. Um, now like I'm like walk outside and it's like 60 and I'm like, where's my jacket? Right. <laughs> It's funny so, how that yeah. that changes so fast. Like you can go on a vacation for a week and a half or two weeks or whatever, and you come back to whether it's hot or cold that you come back to, and you just have an intolerance to that so fast. Oh, yeah. um, I completely disagree with you. I lived in Colorado for a couple, like, three, four years, and that dry heat just sucked me. I mean, the, 
it, it just dried you out from the inside out. And like you said, you have to have water on you. That dehydration factor was huge for me. And I'd much rather have the humid heat. Much, much rather. Yeah. So, funny. yeah, the interesting thing with the wind is uh, like it completely changes. And we see this with our athletes all the time because it's a climate they've never been exposed to. So when they come in the training camp and these the, the when the winds kick up, it's, I mean, Las Vegas is a big valley. Mm-hmm. And when the winds kick up, it completely changes your allergy situation. Like my allergy season here is way different than it was East coast. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the dryness is it. I mean, it's there hundred percent and there's days in the summer where you walk outside and you feel like you just opened the oven. Like there's days right. where there's days where I'm not, I don't want to go outside. Um, but for overall, if it's like, that's what it gets up to like one fifth, one ten, one fifteen. Like right. if it's, if it's a hundred or even one Oh five, if I'm outside in the shade, it's not bad. Like I view it as tolerable and I don't mind it at all. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go full Midwesterner on this because, you know, Midwesterners are classically talking about the weather all the time. So uh, you had mentioned a couple times now that you travel with the team. Uh, Does that change your role as a athletic trainer and your, uh, I don't want to say your position and title or anything, but your jobs and your um, ability to work with the athletes when you're on the road? Yeah, it changes it slightly. So, um, from a therapy perspective, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. We just travel with one, one less athletic trainer. Um, and then the other athletic trainer is at home, um, taking care of any of our, uh, long-term injuries, um, and long-term rehabilitations. So, um, I end up having a little bit more of a communication role, um, with, uh, with, the the higher ups of the organization and getting them the necessary updates that they need, um, after a game on a practice day, whatever the case may be. Um, so I would say the, the, the part that changes the most for me would be my communication and who I'm communicating with, I would say. That communication aspect, that working in a multidisciplinary high level system, really, is that something that you were exposed to through your previous positions and through your uh, pre-career to where you got to now? I think it's a very different, it's just a different level of communication. So, I mean, communication is always important, but when I was in the American hockey league in Wilkes-Barre, um, Scranton in Pennsylvania, it was one athletic trainer, one strength conditioning coach, one head coach. I think we had two assistants at that time, but we, when we started out, we only had one. So one or two assistant coaches and you all travel on the same bus. Like you're all always around each other and it's the same core group communicating on a regular basis. It's very easy level of communication, right? So that was one of the biggest exposures and biggest um, adaptations I had to make at the NHL level is there's more people. And when there's more people, more people around, if if your communication level isn't high, things are going to fall through the cracks. And sometimes those things that fall through the cracks are important pieces of information. so it's uh so because now at, at our level we have three athletic trainers, massage therapists, two strength coaches, um, multitude of coaches, um, GMs travel. There's a there's a hot the communication it has a huge huge component to the success of especially our department. Like if right. we're not say, if we're not saying a high level of communication, just for an example, our strength and conditioning coaches. And they're, they're trying to do some sort of training stimulus that is negative to a current injury that's going on. I mean, that has big ramifications. I mean, that, that can, that can certainly almost even affect the player status sometimes. So, um, communication is, is, is a very big jump from 
um, I would say the minor leagues to the, uh, to the major leagues, if you will. Well, and that's something that you and I have experienced between our conversations is working with, like you said, uh, clientele that are the same. Um, when we work with the same athlete, like you and I have had long threads of texts, calls, emails with something as simple as like, Hey, what exactly should we be doing here? At what time should we wait a day? Should we wait two days? Should we wait two weeks with this individual? And it's that kind of communication that you said might be deleterious to their projection of outcome or potentially their status. So that communication aspect in all healthcare, not just professional athletes in the NHL specifically is crucial. Um, with that, and this is something that I didn't plan on asking you, so feel free to touch on it as much as you want to or not. How do you view the secrecy of the NHL compared to other sports? Like you said, you are a avid sports fan. When you watch the NFL, specifically this season, they'll say like, this player out with COVID, out with a high ankle sprain, left side here, like they'll, they'll list everything. In the NHL, mm-hmm. it's upper body injury, lower body injury. Is that frustrating as a clinician and a fan or one or the other or how does that feel for you if i'd separated out before the time that i worked in ice hockey i would say it was frustrating just as a curious young wanting to be athletic trainer was always like okay but like now i'm at the point where if i'm watching another sport say baseball or football if I see the mechanism of injury, I got a pretty good idea. Right. So like, it, like no matter how much information they give or not, now that I have that knowledge, I can probably have a good idea of what's going on. But um, yeah, so I think it's, I think it's just competitive advantage. You just don't want to give, especially if that player is still playing. If that player is still actively playing through an injury, I think it's, any bit to get as a competitive advantage to um, to just limit the the chance of another team knowing knowing something about your about your current squad. That is the perfect answer that I was hoping you'd give, and I'm glad you said that because I agree. If you look at baseball or football, and, and not that there's, I mean, baseball there's very little contact, right? But like football, let's take for example, if there's a contact injury, like you said, you can pretty much guess based off of the mechanism of injury, what exactly happened to that individual. So, but in hockey, not to say that all these other sports players are, or athletic endeavors are uh, soft, but hockey's kind of got this tough guy mentality. So you'll see somebody get injured, break their jaw, lose some teeth, whatever it might be, a fracture of their orbital bone, and they'll still play the rest of the game. And so with this tough guy mentality, there is that competitive advantage to maintaining that secrecy. Because otherwise, you go out the next game, and if they're still in, you know that somebody else would be, unless they see stitches or something, the other team's players are going to be targeting that specific joint, that specific area, with every hit and con- uh, contact that they make. So I like that. You started with Vegas uh, in the year of their expansion, in the year of their genesis. Um, I guess, what's it like to be a part of an expansion team, a brand new, fresh start, zero, you know, pre-existing providers, zero pre-existing notions of how to manage a team. Uh, And of course they bring in people with experience, right? But you guys are truly a brand new team, not only the players, but the staffing as well. Tell us a little bit more about how that uh, came to be. Yeah, it was actually one of the most attractive things that I wanted that attracted me to the position. Um, 
it was uh it's rare like i don't like i don't know how many times you can see this happen like i, I didn't like i might never able to be a part of this process again in my career i'd probably say i probably won't but it was uh it was special to be able to bring a group of people together that are all there like it was it was like our our staff was just created with a high level emphasis on our ability to work together as a group. Like we were recruited that way and having that and being able to really establish culture, like the culture is thrown around a lot, but like we really were able to establish what we wanted as a group and our, and our staff on what are our priorities? What are our core values? Like what, what do we want this all to be? And it's all fresh. You don't have someone that's been there for five years under two different coaches from before. Like it was, um, it was all brand new and fresh. I mean, all the way down to the point of like literally moving the weights into the strength conditioning facility as a group. Like that's how bare bones, like it was at the start. Um, and team you, building one one right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it was, uh, it was a special process. It was a special process to be a part of and just see everything collectively grow. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, I think the biggest benefit of that is everybody has to check their ego at the door. It doesn't matter if you had came from Scranton with the uh, office in the background. I'm, I'm sure that's why you live in Scranton, right? That's, <laughs> that's an office is, reference. The sign's uh, there. I know, yeah. It, <laughs> we're joking when they film that intro, right? No, it doesn't matter if you came from Scranton with this much experience and this you know, background working with the Penguins organization and all this, or if you'd been in the industry for 27 years and worked with 18 different NHL teams, or maybe you came from a different sport. You got all your entire staff had to check your ego at the door and work towards a common goal, which is team. I mean, that's kind of the definition of teamwork, right? Um, that had to be really, really cool. So I'm glad you got to experience that. Yeah, it was, a, it was, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'd say the chances are pretty slim for me ever to be a part of that, something like that again. So and you're not getting traded to Seattle then? <laughs> I mean, it, I've, I've had people that have been, that are going to be a part of the, um, Seattle team reach out that are some of the hirings that they've made. And it's, uh, they, they want to see like what's the most recent one. And I'm always happy to collaborate and happy to, to share what I can because it's a special process. Start being able to be a part of something at that, at that level. Yeah. Must be special being able to steal other teams, best players, right? <laughs> it worked out I mean, well first, first year. I can't complain because the wild were a friend or the expansion team too. So, but we actually had a team previously. So I don't know. So you work with the best of the best. Is there any difference from, I mean, you started as a graduated assistant working in collegiates. You'd worked with high school athletes in the past. You've worked with pretty much the whole gamut of what athletic training as a career can provide. What's the difference between everybody else versus working with the best of the best professional athletes? Or is there a difference? I think the biggest difference is just the passion, the passion for their craft of being a professional in, in a sport. And then also their, their dedication to be as best as they can be at their sport. I mean, it's, um, it's evident across any, any league that I've been in, in the ice hockey world that, um, it's, it, it's a high, highly level, high level motivated athlete that is, is going to give you what the best they can not only for their sport, but also in their, if they're in a rehabilitative situation. 
Um, and I think that's the, I think that's the biggest difference across the board is just the, the dedication to them trying to better themselves on and off the ice. Do you find that there's like an inherent trust built in then when, I mean, if Kyle says that I've got to do it or is there, so AKA is there less questioning when you give them a recommendation versus maybe other people or other individuals and athletes would, or how does that go? I think there's trust that needs to be built. Like that was our, to go back to our previous conversation and blend it, that was our primary goal of our first year was, I mean, we got player, we, we have a player from essentially every organization in the league with our team. They've all had numerous exposures to strength conditioning coaches, athletic trainers, um, therapists like yourselves, if they have a personal therapist, things like that, um, where they have a lot of opinions um, and they've been exposed to a lot of things. So it's not just going to be day one, they show up and the trust is going to be there between our staff and them. So we had to, you got to establish that trust to be able to be able to influence how their, their rehabs going, how their training going, be open to their, um, exposures, which I think is, I mean, I think the reason I'm on this podcast is because of the relationship we built in, in a collaboration situation. So establishing those collaborations to build trust with the athlete is, is what's going to be able to have the best outcome for, for all parties specifically specifically the player that is phenomenal to hear because it, it doesn't change i mean they're human too right and they have their preconceived notions and they have their like you said personal therapists and other experiences through their careers and you're working with everybody from a rookie to a veteran who's been on potentially six seven eight different teams and bounced around the league or you you know received from a different league in 2017 or a different team in 2017 and it's really interesting and really relieving to hear that you still have to build that trust aspect. It isn't just inherently built in. They don't just say, Oh, yep. Showing up to work. Got to do what they say. Um, and that's the reality of therapy and working with athletes of any level is creating buy-in in the soft skills aspect of it and creating a relationship. Now you don't have to be best friends, but creating a trustworthy relationship is crucial. So it's again, relieving to hear that. You didn't always work with professional athletes. Um, we heard in the intro kind of your background of how you got to where you uh, currently are, but tell us a little bit more about your progression and your career and maybe the keystone steps that you took that led you to where you are today. Yeah, I think when I, I mean, when I first got exposed even in the back when we were talking about the, the where I established athletic training, I still kind of had PT in my mind at that time too. Um, I thought that was kind of maybe the route I wanted to go um, and work for. Um, at the time, I was thinking more football. I was a I was a bigger football football fan. Followed the sport a bit more. Started learning more about the ins and outs of the sport. Had exposures to the sport in my early college with my rotations at high school and college levels. Um, what, um, what changed for me was on the PT side, when I learned more about what all goes into being a physical therapist and what all goes into being an athletic trainer, athletic training was just the right thing for me. I wanted to work with sport. I mean, there are obviously PTs that work with sport, but, um, most of the time, I mean, at the professional level, you do have PTs that are there day in, day out, but most of the time you're more in an outpatient clinic. Um, I might be working with athletes, but you're not there for the day-to-day -day operations. And I wasn't 
Um, I didn't have any interest at the time for learning about all the other aspects and domains that PT provides. I was, I was more uh, focused on the sport. So anyway, so um, what changed for me was, is around sophomore year of undergrad, I would say, yeah, I think it was sophomore year, which is right when you're getting into the professional phase of athletic training programs. Um, so I reached out to um, our local ECHL ice hockey team called the Reading Royals. Um, and I was home for Christmas break and I was just trying to get as much exposures as I could get as much um, connections as I could, just like any young professional. And um, all I did was email their head athletic trainers named Brian Gogreski. And uh, he was emailed right back, was happy to have me in just to observe over my Christmas breaks. And whenever I, whenever I was maybe home over a weekend or something like that for a game and um, being exposed to the hockey world um, the day in and day outs, it was just the, the culture of it was just amazing to see it. The, the, the family like atmosphere, um, the respectfulness across all levels, no matter which player you are, no matter what role you're in, um, yeah, I just felt, I felt valued as a sophomore athletic training student, just there trying to learn something. Um, and I was, uh, I was able to be a part of a part of the group, um, throughout my time in, in undergrad and, uh, getting exposed to that at that time is what attracted me to ice hockey. Like it was pretty much a shift. It was just like, all right, what ice hockey experience can I get? Yeah. Um, so, um, so my senior year at um east Stroudsburg, the the our last internship uh i shouldn't say our last internship, our last semester you had the option of doing an, uh, an additional internship um clinical rotation i guess i should say or you could take the time to study for our board certification exam and i was purely on the aspect of i want to get another experience like why not so um the head athletic trainer for the wilkes Race grand penguins um was an east, east Stroudsburg alum and it was about 45 minutes away so that ended up turning into a formal clinical rotation, which down the road turned into a graduate assistant position for the program, um, which it was kind of cool to be a part of the grassroots of that. But I was just looking for another another experience. And again, same thing, fell in love with the the culture, the the way the teams are run, the just a tight knit community of it. And um, that's what brought me to hockey. Um, I always had aspirations, I think, to get to the professional level. Um, just because I, I've always viewed it as kind of the highest, uh, the tier of the, of the sport and be able to work with that high level athlete was always, uh, was always the passion. But, um, that first exposure to ice hockey, um, was, uh, was got, was what got me, was what got me there. Yeah. I think that what you said with the hockey culture and the idea of it being a family, like that can get a bad rep if you don't experience it for yourself and like i've been guilty of this too pre previously to working with so many hockey players and being part of this hockey culture it really is one of the coolest i don't want to say goony like some of the people that you get to work with are fun fun individuals and that can go across all different sports but hockey players in specific are just really fun people to be around and not knowing the inner workings of an organization as big as vegas but just the individuals that I get to work with. I completely, completely agree with that. I do find it funny that you said previously you, you looked into PT school, but you didn't want to be a doctor. You said earlier that you didn't want to go to school for that long. 
but you went to undergrad and then you got your master's and I mean, you spent some time in school, so you, you could have been a doctor. I mean, don't sell yourself short on the, the title alone, right? Um, no, no, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, um, I mean, my wife's a physical therapist. I have nothing against the physical therapy, uh, <laughs> physical therapy field. I mean, she works in a, she works in a inpatient hospital and her goal is to have, uh, to get people to go home just to activities right. of daily living, be able to right. function with activities of daily living. Um, that's just not my passion. No. Um, and I completely so, agree with that. Uh, she, she loves it. And yeah. um, I'm happy. I'm happy. She loves it, but um, it's just not where my where my passion was. And um, yeah, but then this is going to kind of go by the wayside now with where athletic training has gone with their education side. The role I had when I went to graduate school was I had a graduate assistantship, and with athletic training changing from an undergraduate degree to a master's level degree needed for to sit for your boards. Um, that position was so like, I had the option to do a one. It's funny. I, I guess I kind of contradict myself. I had the option to do a one year or a two year option in grad school. And, um, I wanted the two year option because I got an, I got a chance to work with their club ice hockey team there and truly be a head athletic trainer right out the gates. Like it was a, a it wasn't like your division. It was a division one school, but this was a, this it was called the ACHA was the league. And it was essentially, um, it was very good club. Like there were players that would, consider going to this league or division three, um, ice hockey. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like just, Hey, let's get together and play hockey. No, it was, it was a very legit league, very competitive league. Um, and I had the opportunity to be a head athletic trainer right out of school, which was daunting at the time. Um, have three, I have three undergraduate athletic training students working underneath me. I'm just certified. I'm the head athletic trainer for a club ice hockey team. I'm just trying to figure out myself, let alone try to educate right, people. Right. Um, but I grew, I grew so much from my first year there to my second year there. Um, and I think athletic trainers are going to, it's going to be hard to get that experience moving forward with this shift. I mean, I agree with the shift to the masters. I think it's, I think it's very good for the profession. Don't get me wrong, but that, that opportunity to be a graduate assistant is kind of gone um, or at least go by the wayside, not as popular um, where it was uh, very valuable. I guess to expand upon that, I guess through your experiences getting to where you are today, when you got that call in 2017 saying like, Hey, I, your application looks beautiful. We want to get you to sit down, not just for an interview, but you've got the job kind of thing um, for Vegas. Right. Did you feel that through the experience that you just mentioned, that imposter syndrome and that daunting feeling of, am I qualified? Am I actually worth this position? Was that gone by the time Vegas came around or did you still have a little bit of that? No, I think I, I think it's only natural to have that a little bit with any, with any new experience, right? Like I think every experience that I've had as I've moved from job to job, there's a, there's a level of okay, what do I need to do at this? Am I ready for this? Is this something what like really get everything mentally around the idea? No, I'm ready for this. This is what I, this is what I've worked towards. This is what I need to get to. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's definitely there. Um, it was, uh, there were, there were certain aspects of the position that were definitely a bigger jump than I would have expected going from the American hockey league to the national hockey league and just had to adapt and overcome in the moment. Um, but it was, uh, I mean, it was a spe- it was one of it was a special time, you know, to get that call to be able to have the position out here, and uh, it was uh, exciting and uh, nervousness at the same time. I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, nothing good comes from easy, right? I mean, 
that challenge and that inner workings of work ethic that you've built up to that point led you to even applying for that job and even having a consideration for it. Uh, so it's definitely well-deserved is what I'm getting at, right? Um, with that building process, and this is a question that, you know, feel free to answer however you need to and want to. Has there been an instance where maybe not a, a, a failure, but a, a big learning moment in your career path and your trajectory that has been kind of a defining moment? Um, whether that's, like I said, either, I don't want to say a failure, but um, something that you learned from that has guided you the rest of the way. I think for, for me, for that, I think the, it goes back to a topic we talked about before, which was uh, based around communication. I think very early in my career, um, I was dictating things rather than communicating things. Not, and I'm not, not by all saying that like it's my way or the highway, but I think uh, as I've grown throughout my career, there's been instances where I need to value the audience that I'm talking to. And that communication changes with any audience that I'm, I'm speaking to. And you have to learn, learn the situation, learn the person receiving the information. How do they need to receive it? How do you need to communicate it? Um, and things like that. An example that I would go back to would be I had a player um, earlier in my career where um, he went out and um, we were we were traveling. We were in a, a town where he played college, and he went to a local therapist, um, someone kind of like yourself, to to receive care and receive this. Um, and that was at a point where I was very early in my career, and I wasn't exposed yet to the the high level of collaboration that's needed for the best thing for that athlete. I in this situation right wrongfully at the time took it as why'd you go and do that why do i need why did i not get informed about this why what like i was centering it around myself versus centering it around what was best for the athlete like you said before athletes have relationships with other therapists they have relationships with other um people throughout their throughout their careers and throughout their um athletic career and um looking back on that now i think i've truly grown from that in that um, it should have been more of a collaboration approach. It should have been more of um, what is best for the athlete in that moment. Whereas there is the other side of the coin where I, I still, I need to know the status of the athlete, right? Like I still need to inform our coaching staff of who's available to play that night. So there is that other side of it. I just think I was way too far on that side where I didn't take into the, into account what the player was looking for and what the player was trying to get. Yeah. The personality behind the, athlete is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just this meat bag that a company or a team owns. There's a, there's a brain behind it and they have, uh, their trusting relationships or their, I mean, we have to acknowledge and at least appreciate their preconceived notions and what they want in their career as well. So, uh, really, really cool to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. I want to finish today's conversation with the three questions uh, I don't believe I gave you a, a heads up on these. So these might be a little surprise for you, but these are three questions that I'm going to be asking every guest on the podcast. Um, and I think it's really cool to hear what you have to say, hear what all these people that I look up to and see as keystone figures in this healthcare industry and just the moving world and being able to pick their brains on. Okay. So you ready for this? 
Yeah. This is not professionally related, I think, unless you want to answer it that way whatsoever. Um, if you could be ranked top 10 in the world at something, what would it be and why? My immediate thought goes towards golf because it's always been like my competitive hobby outside of sports kind of thing. Golf is a sport. Uh, so I've, I've just never played it as a sport. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, like, I, like I, I actually kind of like go back and think like, man, I wish I did high school golf instead of soccer. Like that would have been so much more fun. But, um, but I love soccer at the same time. That's why I never did it. Right. Um, so yeah, I probably, I'm probably leaning towards, um, golf on that one on a kind of related option. I've really gotten into mountain biking lately. That's been kind of like my COVID act safe activity, but still getting benefit out of it physically. That's yeah. been like, that's kind of been my, my go-to since this. So like really getting into that field and like, just like slowly doing harder and harder trails. Like it's not a top 10, but like slowly, like getting over spots and getting up spots that I've never gotten to before is, has been, um, I'd say an accomplishment I've seen in, in that in itself. Um, a true top 10 though. I, 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 golf is probably where my mind goes towards uh, first. Yeah. On that. I think those two answers are perfect. I mean, you can choose two answers. There's no right or wrong answer to this, right? I think it's funny that you say those two because golf is easily my answer. I mean, imagine being heck, not even top 10 in the world, but like top 100 in the world. You show up for four days. Hopefully if you make the cut, you let's say you take 68th place or something like that you're still coming home with hundreds of thousands of dollars to play a beautiful course and do something that you love. Mm -hmm. And then you get to go home or wherever to the next tournament and just play again and again. And I mean, for me, I love golf. So I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. Uh, and yeah, then the hard, the, yeah, the, sorry, just sorry to touch on the, no, the no, golf. No. Like it's always been like golf for me is like, I don't have the time anymore to be as good as I could be at golf. I'm sure yeah. you're probably in a similar boat. Like I grew up, my summer job growing up was golf course maintenance crew. I've worked on golf courses all throughout high school and even through my college years and summers. So I played a lot of golf. Yeah. Um, and I got to be pretty decent at it. Like I got to be able to shoot in the seventies pretty consistently. And the hard part, the frustrating part about it is now is that I can't do that anymore. Yeah. Like maybe you have flashes of it, but it's a sport that if you're not doing it and you're not playing at a consistent basis, it's not going to happen. And it's frustrating. I'm, yeah. sure you can I'm sure you can relate. Oh, yeah. like you, have, you have your best rounds and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to be able to do this every week. Not a chance. It's a drug. And that's what I was going to say. That's exactly what I was going to say about mountain biking. There's two things that you mentioned that you just can't perfect. You can't have a perfect route or trail on a mountain bike and you can't have a perfect round. There's no such thing. You can't beat or win a golf game like against yourself, right? And because you can't shoot a zero, that's just physically impossible. And you can't shoot an 18. That's impossible, too. So um, two things that you can blame the weather, you can blame the tread conditions, you can blame a lot of things. But at the end of the day, it's yourself. And those are the kind of sports that I think a lot of not even sports activities, if it's underwater basket weaving or scrapbooking or whatever you're interested in as a hobby, um, I think more people should find something that is unwinnable and challenging within themselves and their own uh, willpower. It's a huge learning moment. So I like those. I like those. I, I agree with that 100%. It's the challenge of it. Because like, yeah. I mean, I've had moments even where I've done the same trail over and over and over again. And the other day, I just, I went over the handlebars at a spot where I've done millions of times. Right. And I'm like, 
I'm like, all right. So it's, it, it, it's, it's a consistency and the a, a consistent challenge that I think has driven me probably to those, those two. Now that I think about it from that perspective. Yeah. And then in that moment, of course, you're like, I have short-term disability insurance, don't I? Yeah. yeah okay. Good. <laughs> I had the exact same thing happen to me when I was living in Colorado. I went over the handlebars and I didn't have disability insurance at that point. So I was starting to freak out like, okay, I mean, knee jerk reaction. I'm like, okay, something hurts. It doesn't feel broken, but if it is, and then you start getting that like anxiety set in. Yeah. You just yeah. say I have disability insurance now. So um, <laughs> that's the second time I've mentioned this on this podcast, by the way. It was kind of funny. So same story gets mentioned twice. Uh, next question is, what's one thing you know that you can do better at and aspire to learn within the next year? Good question. Um, personally or professionally? Personally, um, I would say my biggest thing that I want to get better, better at, and what is my focus is how to be a parent. Um, we're expecting our first child. And that part is something that is on my mind and how can I be as best as I can be at this, but not overbearing at the same time. Right. Yeah. Which I think is probably just a struggle of most parents. Um, other side that I probably is truly trying to be proactive at my at my job yeah like true like uh, it's something that is kind of in my foundation to like how can i truly move the needle and truly make a difference on preventing injury um so i've always had my mindset around what can i what can i learn and what can i do to truly make a difference on that on that side of my my job yeah, I mean, and we see this, I love that you said that, because it's really easier, it's not really easy, it's easier to be reactive in healthcare. I mean, most of our healthcare system is built off of reactivity, not proactivity, right? And I know mm -hmm. through, you've done quite a bit of research or been a part of a research team into preventative measures for athletics. And so I know that's in your background of being more proactive against the risk of injury. And I think that's something that all of us healthcare providers uh, either are either are already, it's a tongue twister, striving to do, um, or should at least look at ourselves in the mirror and try to do a little bit more of. Um, so I like that you said that. On the parenting aspect of things, man, coming from somebody who has two under two, like, good luck. You, you don't, <laughs> there's no teaching moment. You just learn as you go, uh, which is one of the fun things about it. So, mm -hmm. so congratulations is what I meant thank to you. say. And yep, good luck. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's the best job you'll ever have, man. It's the best job you'll ever have. You'll be great. You'll be great. Last question here is, uh, what's one actionable step that you would advocate for listeners and viewers to take better care of their relationships, their health, their movement, and their lives? Like a daily tip trick, a weekly haiku, anything like that. So I think there's an answer somewhere in where my idea is going is that I've recently... I've recently really brought into like where my, my readings have gone and like my podcast listening towards um, stoicism and like yeah. better and like bettering, bettering yourself and bettering everyone else around you. Um, so I've really gone down that path a lot and um, I've, I've really, I've really liked it. I've liked it for moments in time where I need to be uh, more aware of myself and how my actions are. Um, it's really helped me navigate through some time, recent times in, uh, professionally and personally. Um, 
the other side that I've traditionally gone to in with that question is I get a lot of, I've tried to involve, involve myself in as much um, athletic training education as I have during my career. Um, in having students, um, I do some, uh, I do some guest lecturing at UNLV with their program here. Um, and the biggest thing that I see is just as simple as it goes back to the story where I where I first got exposed to hockey is just reach out. Like, like there's people out there that want to help people. Mm-hmm. Like all you, all you got to do is reach out and be willing to volunteer. I'm not saying like overload yourself, but yeah. they're as simple as it is, is just reaching out and asking for help in certain aspects, whether professional or personal, that people are going to want to help you. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's kind of the synopsis of both things you just said there. I mean, you're reaching out to research and books and stoicism, uh, literature, or just inspirations to better yourself. You're, you're volunteering yourself to better yourself. And then you're volunteering your time to help others. And I think that's one of the coolest things about every guest that I've had on here. And so many people across the world, regardless of their profession is most people are inherently good and want to help. And your ability, I mean, I shot you a text and I was like, Hey Kyle, I'm starting this podcast. Would you want to be a guest? Without a doubt, you're like, yep, love to. And send me the outline. I want to answer some questions. And you just jumped at the opportunity. So I greatly appreciate that. Um, That's all I had for us. So I want to thank you so much, first and foremost, for joining me today. Sorry for the little time snafu. Uh, We we got on a half hour early, everybody, (laughs) because I don't know my time zones, apparently. Um, Math is hard. Math is hard. I haven't traveled. So I, I generally travel across the United States, you know, two or three times a month teaching and all that. And I've got, I used to be pretty good at time zones and knowing exactly what time it was everywhere. It's been, I guess, since March, early March, since I've traveled and I lost the ability apparently. So, but a little synopsis for us. Uh, again, this is Kyle Moore, associate head athletic trainer with the Vegas Golden Knights, um, works with some of the best of the best, but at the end of the day, they're people too. And the communication that we use when talking to the individual that we're working with, whether they're an athlete or a run-of-the-mill recreational weekend warrior or just the 95-year-old osteoporotic patient in front of you, um, there's still people too. And the communication that we have with that individual, as well as the team that's working with them, is crucial. Um, follow your passions and what leads you to asking more questions is how Kyle got to where he is today and getting interested in human anatomy and what the human movement body does for us. Um, so again, Kyle, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, look forward to hearing more of you and with you and working with you and the shared clientele in the future. Thank you, Reed. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care.